the Carlisle Industrial School. Have any of y'all ever heard of the Carlisle Industrial School? The Carlisle, in, no alum, okay. The Carlisle Industrial School was formed uh, in the late 1800s as a school for American Indians. And it's, it's a fascinating story that, that I'll say for another day. But they formed a football team, one of the early football teams. And in 1903, they hired Pop Warner to be their first full-time football coach. And Pop Warner realized that his team was pretty fast, but they were also pretty small. And he had to to figure out how to match up against bigger teams. And so he basically is the guy who came up with the trick play in football. Uh, One of the first things he did was the hidden ball trick, where you would literally take the football and stick it inside the running back's jersey. They'd even sewed the jersey so that it wouldn't fall out easily. And in those days, the offense was pretty much everybody ran into each other, and you got a yard or two at the time. And so the guy with the running back hidden in his jersey would scamper around the end because nobody knew who had the ball. Uh, Later on, he sewed leather patches that looked like footballs onto the jerseys to confuse the other team about who really had the ball. They did this against Harvard. Harvard got kind of upset about this, and so they painted the footballs they were using maroon to match their maroon jerseys. Uh, But every year it seemed like Pop Warner would would come up with some new kind of scheme, and the next year the rules committee would outlaw whatever Pop Warner had done the year before. Like, okay, we can't do that. And so the rule book just, just grew and grew and grew, even today. Uh, regulations are added and discussed. The NFL is trying to figure out what exactly constitutes a catch, unbelievably, uh, this offseason. And so we have this ever-growing list of rules. But everything you add has to flow from what was already there. Otherwise, it doesn't really make any sense. You, you don't have a coherent set of rules. The Bible was not written all at once. right? It didn't just drop down in, in the ESV version for us. Okay, It was written by men inspired by God over the course of about 1,600 years. Numerous stories, numerous prophecies, numerous rules and commandments. And we believe that this all fits together to tell one story. But, but how? More specifically, how do the things in the Old Testament connect with the things that are in the New Testament? Uh, do the rules of Exodus and Leviticus, do those still apply to Christians today? Do the Old Testament laws have anything to do with us? Now, um, this may not sound like the most interesting thing to talk about on a morning when everybody's just lost an hour's sleep. I understand that. So let me, let me give you two reasons why I think this is important for us to think about. Number one, we're in a series on sanctification. How, how Christians grow in their faith, how we grow in holiness. And one of the things that sometimes we get confused is, well, what does God's law have to do with our sanctification? What, what do all these Old Testament rules and regulations have to do with how I live today? Do, do I have to obey them? I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like Christians are obeying all these rules. So, so which ones do I obey? Which ones do I, do I take seriously? So so that's one reason. Second reason, uh, this is important, Christians are often charged with being inconsistent uh, in the way we take what's in the Bible and live by it. We're we're charged with, well, you you pick some things and you obey those and then you look at other things and you don't obey those. 
Why do you ignore the parts of the Old Testament about not eating pork or shellfish or not wearing clothes made of two types of material or executing people for adultery, but you still condemn homosexuality? I mean, you're just kind of picking and choosing what you want, right? Um, now, the New Testament, I would argue, also says homosexuality is a sin, but, but that's still a legitimate question to ask. I mean, why, why do we say these things we still live by, and why do we look at other things and say, no, you, you don't have to do that any longer? And the answer is not the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore, we're New Testament people. Okay, if you, that's not the answer, if you've used that answer before. So... We're going to ask three questions this morning. Number one, how do we look at the Old Testament in general? Number two, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? And number three, okay, what do these Old Testament laws mean for me today? So, uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be reading verses 17 through 20, and, and this is the Word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, um, thank you for, for the Bible, for the Old and the New Testament. I, I pray that you would guide my speech and open our hearts and that we would better understand uh, how all of your word applies to our lives this morning. We, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, first question. Um, how do we look at the Old Testament? And I'm, gonna, I'm getting at this in kind of a big picture sort of way. You know, sometimes you read the, the Old Testament and, and maybe you're in the list in num- numbers or you're in the descriptions of sacrifices in Leviticus or you're in the prophecies against other nations in Isaiah, and, and you're just like, what, what in the world? I, I have no idea what this means, and even if I knew what this means, I would not know where to begin applying it to my life today. Uh, some of you know that I was briefly in law school, and this is how I felt in my contracts class. I, I would like, my eyes would just glaze over at the minutia of everything that was involved there, and that's the way some of us, many of us feel when we look at the Old Testament. We're like, I, I don't know what this means. So if you're a Christian, that means you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, what does Jesus say about the Old Testament? Well, we just read in verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the, the phrase there, law or prophets, was simply a way of referring to the Old Testament as a whole. And Jesus says, he starts off here saying, I haven't come to do away with the Old Testament. Now, why would Jesus need to say that? You know, all y'all calm down, everybody simmer down. Nobody's getting rid of the Old Testament here. Stay calm. Why does he need to say that? Well, this text is part of a larger section known as the Sermon on the Mount. 
And the Sermon on the Mount, if you'll remember, starts with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes start with Jesus saying that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are those who are poor in spirit and mourning and meek and hungering and thirsting after righteousness and merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers and persecuted and reviled. But he doesn't say anything about them being people who keep the law of God or give attention to the law of God. Uh, Secondly, in his ministry, Jesus frequently criticized the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the people that we know, they were the, the holy people of that day. They were the people who studied the law and knew the law and tried to live out the law of God. And Jesus criticized them. In addition to that, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. He hung out with the sinners. And y'all, this is kind of like if Jesus came today and he hung out with Stormy Daniels and Chris Rock and proprietary lenders and IRS agents and he criticized Focus on the Family and the Gospel Coalition. And and we would just like go, what? Like, don't, don't you care about holiness? Don't you care about the law of God? I mean, I don't understand Jesus. And Jesus says... Everybody take a deep breath. I haven't come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. And, you know, you might say that, okay, good, wait, wait, what? You know, because you've come to fulfill them? Because you guys, we have all these stories, right? These movies where the one comes who has been promised. The oracle has foreseen that this person would come. And then they show up and all the prophecies are about me and I'm the promised one. And that's what Jesus is in effect saying. I have come to fulfill the entire Old Testament. It's all, this, this book from God is all about me. Now, if, if Jesus is not the Messiah, if he's not the Son of God, do, do you understand the, the arrogance of that statement? Uh, it'd be like me standing up here and, and saying, I've come to fulfill the New Testament. It's all written. Everything in it has been pointing to me. But that's what Jesus says about the Old Testament. He says, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So what does that mean? Jesus is saying that all the the different threads of the Old Testament actually come together in him. All the prophecies and the prophets point to him being the great prophet. All the priests point to him as the true great priest. All the kings point to him as the great king, the one true king who is to come. All the laws and the sacrifices point to him as the one who would keep the law and yet be sacrificed like a sacrificial lamb. All the strands of the Old Testament come together in one rope in Jesus Christ. Now, let's let's apply that for a minute. Knowing all that ought to have a huge impact on how you and I read the Old Testament. Uh, These these Old Testament stories, these are not just moral lessons. The, The story of David and Goliath is not simply about how through faith you too can slay your Goliaths. It's about our need for a greater David. The Psalms are not just prayers for us to pray, although they are that, but they're not just that. They're the prayers that Jesus himself actually prayed. And and we ought to think about that when we read them. The sacrifices are not just these weird rituals, 
but they're about our need for a sacrifice for sin. So when we read the Old Testament, we ought to be asking, how does this point me forward to Jesus Christ? How does this highlight my need for Jesus Christ? Uh, One thing that will help you do this, I I think, is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible, you need to get familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, if, if, If parents, if I could get you to do four things with your kids in terms of their spiritual development, pray with them, teach them the catechism, Uh, Get them started memorizing scripture when they're young. and That just becomes a habit. And then read them the Jesus Storybook Bible. And let them read it on their own. Because it it really shows you in very simple terms how all of the Bible is one story about Jesus Christ. Uh, In in fact, if you came to faith later in Christ and you don't have all all the Sunday school with all the Bible stories in your background, the Jesus Storybook Bible is not just for kids it's, it's for adults too it's, it's a great way and college students it's a great way for you to understand how this all hangs together so let, let me just encourage you along those lines so how do we look at the old testament we look at it realizing that it all points to jesus it all points to jesus all the threads come together in him all right secondly how does jesus fulfill the old testament how does he fulfill the old testament And I want to think this morning, not so much about how he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, but how does he fulfill the law? How does Jesus fulfill the law? Uh, As you read verses 18 through 20, I'm not going to read those again, but but you see Jesus seems to think the law is very important and of lasting significance. So what does it mean and, and, and how exactly does he fulfill the law? I want to suggest a couple of ways. There are others, but I want to highlight two. Uh, Number one, Jesus fulfilled the law by meeting the demands of the law. He fulfilled the law by meeting the demands of the law. To understand that, let's think for a minute about how law, just law in general, functions in our lives. Law says to us, if you keep me, you will have blessing, you will have righteousness, you will have an identity. Uh, Ichiro Suzuki professional baseball player is going to be a a hall of fame baseball player he's 44 years old Uh, but so far this year no major league team has picked him up so he he may wind up playing once again in his native japan he really wants to play until he's 50 last year somebody asked him what are you going to do when you finish baseball and he said i'll i'll probably just die Uh, a former teammate said I really just hope he keeps playing because I don't want him to die. I believe he might die if he doesn't keep playing. What is Ichiro going to do if he doesn't play baseball? Uh, He carries his bats in a custom humidor to keep the moisture, to keep out the moisture. Uh, He once panicked a New York Yankees clubhouse attendant because he grabbed him and he said, this can never happen again. And the guy's like, oh my goodness, what happened? And he took him back to his locker and the guy's like, what, what? And he pointed to his bat and his bat had shifted eight inches. When the guy hung his uniform in there and had thrown everything off for him. He's like that. And so they just they quit putting his uniform in there and they just handed it to him. It's like, all right, all right, man. Uh, in the minors, it said that at times he would wake up in the middle of the night and practice swinging the bat from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. Uh, the, the article I was reading, the author said that he has methodically stripped away everything from his life except baseball. Uh, his wife 
has woken up at night when he was in a slump and found him crying in his sleep. He was told that he would die if he kept playing with a, with a bleeding stomach ulcer. And he said, I'll take my chances. Do you see, I know it's extreme, but do you see the law at work in his life? Do you see the law at work in his life? We, we, we live our lives under the laws that our gods make for us. And he was living his life by that law. The law demanded of him, succeed at baseball and you will have life. And so when he fails to live up to that law that he thinks will bring him life, he's despondent. Now, you probably don't have that issue with baseball, I'm guessing. Uh, but, but in some form, most of us are living under law. Uh, many of us are, are living under the law of busyness. And, and, and let me read from this article by Brad Gray. He says, we're the architects of our own digital prison cells. We derive a certain pleasure out of receiving and dealing with thousands of notifications that interrupt whatever it is that's in front of us. Identity by notification center, though, is a terrible way to live. Truthfully, it's not even really living, it's slavery. We've put ourselves in bondage to our addiction to tasks and schedules and the never-ending juggle of calendars. And perhaps I'm more crotchety than I let on, but I doubt George and Martha Washington had weekly calendar meetings to see when their paths would cross in the midst of all the week's events. Nowadays, couples are routinely scheduling time to be intimate, otherwise it never happened. We are effectively tasking ourselves to death. We're just too busy, crazy busy. We're so busy, in fact, that we begin to feel anxious and guilty if we're not busy. As a society, we've collectively forced everyone to be just as busy as we are, or risk being demeaned, discredited, and devalued. We define ourselves by what we do and what we can accomplish. In a world operating in these terms, achievement is the curator of identity, and furthermore, by that logic, ease is its executioner. Those who aren't working and grinding and pushing, then, are getting left in the dust. They're the beggars crying for alms on the streets of performancism. Work is our virtue, and busyness our currency. The fuller our calendar, the higher our value, the better we feel about ourselves. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, Tim Kreider says, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Do, do you see, and many of us are living under that, but do you see the law at work there? If you're busy, that's the law, keep the law, then you have value, then you have significance. And the busier you are, the more value you have. Some of us are living under the law of our Instagram feeds. Instagram is the, the social media platform we go to show everybody how great our lives are. And how we really have everything put together. So we have to, to post the right pictures with the right comments and hope to get the right comments posted back. Which, which we live or die under the weight of. We live under the demands of that law. The laws we place ourselves under keep telling us we will find life if we measure up to the demands of the law. And so we slave away convinced if we keep these laws that we're going to find blessing. Now, what about the Bible? 
does it put us under the law? Well, yeah, but let me, I'm going to have to nuance that. It actually does, but it's the law given by God that can actually give life. Now, go back, we've talked about Adam and Eve already. In the beginning, Adam and Eve are created in the image of God. They're commanded not to eat of the forbidden fruit. They're promised blessing if they obey, or this is law, and cursing if they disobey. And they failed, right? And so we're all born uh, in sin and in brokenness because of their disobedience. As you keep reading through the Old Testament, laws are given to the nation of Israel, promising blessing if they keep them and cursing if they fail to keep them. Uh, Clean laws and food laws were given to the people that you had to keep. You had to be ritually clean. You had to have eaten the right things in order to come to the temple to worship. And then when you got there, even though you had done this, a lamb still had to be slain. An animal still had to be slain, sacrificed for you. And what that was communicating was, what was meant to communicate, was that you can't keep the demands of the law. You cannot keep the demands of the law. Absolute purity is required to come into God's presence. And even when you jump through all these ceremonial hoops that you're supposed to be jumping through, a sacrifice still had to be made for you because you weren't clean enough. You could never measure up to what the law demanded of you. Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus who came and perfectly obeyed the law who met the demands of the law and brought blessing to his people, purchased eternal life for his people. The, the entrance requirement for heaven is 100, and we're all sitting at zero. And Jesus comes and meets, he, he takes the test for us. He meets the demands of the law. He fulfills the demands of the law. So that now as believers, we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. But we're free. He's met the demands for us. Can, can you imagine for a minute if, if, if you and I weren't trying to meet the demands of, of, of law in general to find our meaning and significance in life? If, if we didn't live under the demands of the laws of social media uh, or, or the law of busyness or the law of success, or the law of achieving the American dream, or the law of of meeting everyone's expectations. Uh, Imagine if we lived knowing that the demands of God's law, the only law that really matters, if we lived knowing that those demands had been met, that they had been met, that we were accepted and loved and free, that we didn't have to earn one bit of acceptance or love from God. It was just ours in Jesus Christ. What if, we, what if we believed that? What if we believed that we didn't have to perform because Christ has already performed for us? Jesus has met the demands of the law that it be obeyed. Secondly, Jesus has met the demands of the law that sin be atoned for. Um, think back to all those Old Testament sacrifices. What did they really accomplish at the end of the day? Here's how, listen to Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And skipping down to verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus meets the demand that sin be atoned for and so fulfills that requirement of the law of God. You know, I, I wonder how many of us this morning, like we, we hear that, but in practice, we're, we're trying to atone for our own sins. You know, um, in Harry Potter, Dobie, the, the house elf, when he breaks one of the rules of the, the family that he used to, to live under and he tells Harry Potter something he shouldn't, he has to punish himself. Right? He has to bang his head against the wall or hit it with a pot or whatever it is that he does. He, he's atoning, trying to atone for what he has done wrong. How, how are you doing that today? How are you punishing yourself? Maybe it's drinking too much. Maybe it's cutting yourself. Uh, how are you verbally or mentally beating yourself up or allowing yourself to be verbally or, 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 or physically even beaten up because you think that's what you deserve? Uh, maybe you're playing the saint in public to atone for who you really are in private. Maybe you're throwing yourself into some good work to try to achieve for your failures and transgressions of the past. What if, what if we could believe that we don't have to pay for those? That, that I don't have to pay for my past failures? That, that I don't have to pay for my sin? What if we believe that Jesus really had met the demands of the law for us what if the gospel really is true what if there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus wouldn't that change everything well thirdly what does the law of God mean for me today how, how should this law function in my life um, I'm going to suggest I think three things here one it, it shatters my self-righteousness. It shatters my self-righteousness. Look, look at verse 20 again. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and I think there's a couple things going on there. One is this. I think to understand this, you have to understand how people viewed the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. I mean, if anybody had their junk together religiously, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. If anybody was holy, it was them. And Jesus said, if you even want to talk about getting into heaven, your righteousness needs to be greater than their righteousness. And it's like if he came today and said, your righteousness needs to exceed that of Mother Teresa and Billy Graham and the Pope. And then maybe we can talk about you getting into heaven. Your law keeping needs to be better than their law keeping. 
Now, why would he need to go and say that? I mean, we've got the Ten Commandments, right? Can't we just read those and see that we're in trouble already? I mean, that's part of the reason that they're there is to, is to show us that we're sinners. Why would he need to kind of like double down like this? Well, I think one of the reasons is that the tendency in so many of our hearts, uh, it's almost our default mode of, of self-righteousness. Um, Tim Keller talks about us operating out of what he calls a moral performance narrative. Uh, He says for the liberal person, what this looks like, their righteousness is they're working for the poor. Or they're working for the oppressed. Or their open-mindedness. And if that's who they are and if that's who their righteousness, that's what their righteousness is, they can't help but look down their noses at people that they think are bigots. For religious conservative people who go to church and read their Bibles and try to do the right thing, we tend to look down at people who are not of the same religion, uh, who aren't working as hard as we are at being good at, at the things we're trying to be good at. For the secular person who just works hard, your tendency is just to look down at lazy people. You know, you and I are, are religious educated people and it's easy for us to look at others and and say look down on others and say why can't they just get their act together like I did why can't they just go to school and get a good job like I did you know we're for the most part we are the older brother in in the parable, parable of the prodigal sons I spent years slaving away and you've been off squandering the government's money receiving free handouts, which is actually my money that you're squandering anyway. And why don't you just straighten up and get your act together like I have? Jesus says the righteousness that you think you have because of your moral performance is not enough. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then... Just in case we might think we're going to slip through and thinking we're doing okay with all of that because we kind of read the law. It's like, yeah, I don't think I've, I've, I, I, haven't, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. Jesus takes the rest of the Sermon on the Mount after this and he says, oh, by the way, your anger is a form of murder and your lust is actually a form of adultery and you need to love your enemies which I heard Stephen Colbert say this week is like the hardest thing that Jesus says. You, you need to actually, no, don't just love the people that like you. Love the people that dislike you and that you dislike. And finally, he'll wrap it up by saying, and oh, yeah, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And just an aside here about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not saying the Old Testament said this, but I'm telling you this. He's saying you guys are completely misunderstanding what the Old Testament was about in the first place. It's always been about your heart. It's always been about your heart. The law shatters our righteousness, our self-righteousness. Secondly, though, the law in the Old Testament continues to point me to the righteousness that I need and that I have in Jesus Christ. So I don't, I don't have to create my own righteousness. I don't have to self-atone. I find that righteousness and acceptance in Christ. And Old Testament continually points me to him. I'm not righteous, but there is one who is righteous. And that's Jesus. And then finally, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this. The law of God shows me how to live. 
It shows me how to live. Jesus fulfills the law of God in and through us as we carry out the commandments. Uh, Romans 8, uh, Paul writes, God sent his son so that in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus fulfills the law in us, through us, as we carry out the commandments. But now back to our $50 question. Well, which commandments? Which commandments? Uh, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that the New Testament makes a distinction between three types of laws in the Old Testament. There are moral laws, there are civil laws, and there are ceremonial laws. And the ceremonial laws and the civil laws no longer apply directly to us. Why don't the ceremonial laws apply any longer? These are laws about sacrifices and clean laws and and food laws. Well, Jesus himself in in Mark 7 says, guys, all foods are now clean. Uh, God makes this plain to Peter in Acts 10 and 11. Uh, Hebrews 10 says that once Jesus has offered the sacrifice for our sin and our sins have been forgiven, we don't need any more offerings for sin. We We don't need to keep making those offerings. And so the one that the ceremonial law pointed to is here. And so we don't need those ceremonies any longer. So we're not bound by those. Well, you guys aren't bringing animals with you to worship the sacrifice every week. Uh, What about the civil laws? Uh, In the Old Testament, Israel was a theocracy. And sins such as adultery were actually punishable by execution. That was the civil penalty. In the New Testament, we're not setting up any theocracy. We're not called to do that. Jesus sends his disciples to the nations to preach the gospel and to build the church. And the church exists under all kinds of governments. All around the world. And now the church deals with the sins of her members by exhortation. And if needed by discipline and and excommunication. Those are the the penalties that the church exercises. You can see Paul handling uh, incest in this way in in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So the the civil laws no longer apply to us beyond kind of the... the, um, the general moral principle you might find in them. And and I'll give you one example of that. Deuteronomy 28, this this would be civil law. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet, which is kind of like a wall for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now, you you don't have to build walls on your roofs, okay? But there's kind of a principle embedded in that that you ought to make your house safe. Like, like, don't leave all the, the electrical wires hanging everywhere. That would, that would be a bad thing for you to do. So that's a, a general principle we might take from a civil law, even though we don't have to go putting walls on top of our roofs. Well, that leaves us with the third category of law, which is the moral law, which the New Testament makes clear is, is still in effect. Uh, the moral law is, is summarized in the Ten Commandments, and it's a reflection of God's character. And God's character doesn't change. And so the New Testament still forbids lying and adultery and murder and idolatry. So I don't have to guess what loving my neighbor looks like. God shows me what it looks like. So how should I reply then to somebody who says, 
Well, you guys are just picking and choosing which laws you obey. Here's, here's what, how Tim Keller suggests that you answer. He says, if I believe Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, I can't follow all the clean laws of diet and practice, and I can't offer animal sacrifices. All that would be to deny the power of Christ's death on the cross. And so those who really believe in Christ must follow some Old Testament text and not others. And so while we don't follow the civil or the ceremonial laws, we do follow the moral law. And here's the thing. As we do that, I think our righteousness will actually exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because it won't be a self-righteousness. It will be a righteousness that flows out of a heart that loves Jesus Christ. Um, I'll close with this story. This year at the Winter Olympics, uh, Chris Madzer, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not, he became the first American to ever win a medal in the luge. Uh, And he was asked how he felt about this great accomplishment. And, you know, people usually, like, they're ecstatic or they're devastated. And and this is what he said. Honestly, it's all in the mentality. I was so comfortable with who I am. I had to go through those ruts to be comfortable with who I am without results. Basically, as a human, I'm comfortable where I'm at. I know what I can do. I know what I can give to the world. I was just so relaxed just knowing that. I was really at peace with myself. So no matter what happened, I have an amazing group of friends and family that are there to support me. And I think they give me ton, tons of energy for this. Do you see what's so beautiful about what he was saying there? He's like, I wasn't running this race to win the love and respect of my friends and family because I already have the love and respect of my friends and family. So he was just free to enjoy the race and to do his best. If you know you already have the love of the Father, you don't have to run the race to win his love. And you don't have to to keep the law to win his love. You run the race guided by the law. Because you know that's the best way to love, to run the race. It's the way you were made to run the race. And it's it's the way the one who loves you wants you to run the race. But you run it. Knowing the whole time that even if you run off the track and crash and take out the wall, he still loves you. He still loves you. Jesus' righteousness is still yours. And your sin has already been atoned for. Run the race. Keep the law. Knowing that. Let me pray. Father, I I pray you'd give us greater insight this morning just into how Jesus has fulfilled the law, the demands of the law for us, and and that we would get that and that we would find freedom in that. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.